The Socialist Correspondent, Podcast One, North Korea. Here's a typical contemporary Western headline on North Korea. Mentally unstable North Korean leader Kim Jong-un threatens war after being pushed over the edge by US fat jibes. Daily Mirror, 29th of February, 2017. Here's another, more middle class, just as biased. With or without Donald Trump's help, Kim Jong-un could easily plunge the planet into its third world war inside a century. The Independent, 30th of April, 2017. And here is Stop the War's Lindsay German in August. Trump and Kim are both highly unpredictable, making them a danger to us all. This view, almost universally accepted now, including on the left, that North Korea and the US are equal dangers to the world, ignores the balance of world forces and the still-living effects of the Korean War. The current crisis cannot be understood without an appreciation of that conflict and how it shaped the North Korea today. So I'm going to begin with a brief summary based on a pamphlet by the Daily Worker correspondent at the time, Alan Winnington, who was one of only two Western journalists to report the war from the northern side. For his pains, he had his passport confiscated by the British government and never returned to the UK, ending his days in East Germany. Winnington's pamphlet, I Saw the Truth in Korea, available online, records what he witnessed, including visiting the shallow graves dug just after the infamous Daejeon massacre of some 7,000 civilian prisoners by US-led forces. This massacre, ordered by Sing Man Ri, the South Korean US puppet and former collaborator with the Japanese, was one among many other murders of political prisoners by the regime in South Korea in the first months of the war. 100,000 people were killed, according to US Embassy official Gregory Henderson. Winnington put the figure at 200,000 at least, and possibly as high as 400,000. Meanwhile, north of the 38th parallel, a line drawn without consultation by two American junior officers in the closing days of World War II, using a National Geographic map of Korea. In the area under Soviet occupation from 1945, a democratically elected government, headed by Kim Il-sung, who'd led a guerrilla army since 1932, brought in women's emancipation, land reform, nationalisation of industry, subsidised rice and free health care. Schools and universities were built, and there was a huge expansion of literacy. Today, North Korea's health system is the envy of the developing world, according to the World Health Organization. Soviet troops withdrew in 1948 after failing to persuade the US to withdraw jointly. Winnington makes the point very clearly that it was America that invaded Korea in 1950, not the other way around. At dawn on Sunday, June 25th, the South Korean army, American-trained, American-equipped and with American officers as advisers, crossed the parallel at three points after a two-day artillery preparation. By three o'clock in the afternoon, the North Korean People's Army had pushed them back and was going over to the offensive. Like trained SEALs, the entirely illegal body which calls itself the United Nations Commission in Korea had sent to America that Sunday afternoon a document purporting to prove that the North Koreans had begun the attack. Their evidence consisted only of a statement made by the South Korean government and Sing Man Ri. During the war, America dropped almost half a million bombs on Pyongyang alone. Germ warfare was used and so was napalm. 32,000 tonnes of it, forcing the population to live underground. Bombing of dams destroyed rice production and led to starvation. 
hospitals and schools were systematically destroyed. General MacArthur ordered that every installation, every facility and village in North Korea should become a military target. More US bombs were dropped on North Korea than America had used in Asia during the whole of World War II. Chief Justice William O. Douglas visited Korea in the summer of 1952. I had seen the war-battered cities of Europe, he said, but I had not seen devastation until I had seen Korea. The war totally destroyed 18 out of the North's 22 cities. General LeMay wrote, We burned down just about every city in North Korea and South Korea both. We killed off over a million civilian Koreans. Current estimates of the total deaths vary. 2.9 million civilian dead is generally accepted by Western sources, not including 1.5 million Korean and Chinese soldiers and 54,000 American soldiers. Another way of putting this is that 20% of the North's population was killed. This traumatic experience explains the North's deep suspicion of America ever since and its fiercely patriotic stance. This is not a question of brainwashing, but of experience in living memory. The war ended in 1953 with a ceasefire, but no peace treaty, only an agreement. This was regarded as a victory by the North, simply because it had survived. According to this agreement, no reinforcements or weapons could be introduced into Korea. In 1958-9, America deployed nuclear missiles in South Korea. There are 28,500 American troops currently stationed in South Korea and 50,000 more in Japan. Over $3 billion was spent reinforcing US forces in South Korea in 2012 alone. Three aircraft carriers, the USS Ronald Reagan and the USS Theodore Roosevelt and the USS Nimitz, are patrolling the area, each the centrepiece of a strike group of destroyers and other heavily armed warships. A nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Michigan, with 154 nuclear-capable Tomahawk missiles on board, is docked in Busan. During its series of almost continuous drills this year, American and South Korean B-1B strategic bombers and F-35B stealth fighters fly right up to the border, performing simulated precision strikes against North Korea's military facilities, in the words of the US Pacific Command and South Korea's Defence Ministry. The exercises practice what they call preemptive decapitation raids aimed at eliminating the leadership in Pyongyang. Heightened rhetoric has accompanied the drills. President Donald Trump told the UN in September that he would totally destroy North Korea if necessary and said Kim Jong-un and his foreign minister won't be around much longer if they ever develop a nuclear missile capable of reaching the USA. The threats of annihilation are not new. In 1995, Colin Powell said the US would turn North Korea into a charcoal briquette. Kim has responded in kind, but in a David and Goliath situation, the rhetoric is also unequal in force and effect. Having once been obliterated in war, Korea takes threats seriously and has developed its own nuclear deterrent and missiles, with 22 missiles launched in 15 tests. It now has between 20 and 30 nuclear bombs and can build at least seven more a year. Retired Russian General Viktor Yisin estimates it will take four to five years for them to be able to hit American cities and maybe three years to hit US bases in the Pacific. Once it can reach America, 
North Korea will have attained deterrence and can then scale back its conventional forces. America has not started evacuating American civilians from South Korea yet, so clearly war is not absolutely imminent. But in the current standoff, accidents are a real danger. There are no rules of engagement for air encounters, so if the North scrambles fighters to intercept US planes, even if it has no intent to engage, the potential for an accidental collision is high. There have been accidental clashes before. The last one in 2001 was off the coast of China. But then the tension was lower. How likely is the US to make a preemptive strike in future? The development of the new B-6112 nuclear bomb, which can penetrate the Earth's surface and destroy North Korea's weapons buried underground, may strengthen the hand of those voices pushing for military action. Powerful figures, such as retired four-star general General Jack Keane and the former ambassador to the UN, John Bolton. Keane says America was weakened by allowing China and North Korea to believe no military action would happen. Thus the job now is to shake that belief and to put the military option back on the table, as they say. How much do you fear a nuclear weapon? asked John Bolton. That's the question. We have to look at preemptive military action. But the hawks in Washington are constrained by public opinion. A Washington Post ABC News poll found that 67% of respondents oppose preemptive US strikes on North Korea and agree to military action only if Pyongyang were to attack the United States or one of its allies. Admiral Dennis Blair, former Director of National Intelligence, said in a telling interview recently, What we've learned over time is, it matters who starts these things, right? When you get the US public behind an administration, it's when we're attacked. Pearl Harbour is a classic example. So what you want to do in most of these situations is manoeuvre the other guy into taking the first step, and then you crush him after he started it. He cites the 2003 invasion of Iraq as an example of what not to do. Another problem for the US is the difficulty of intercepting intercontinental ballistic missiles. Philip E. Coyle III, who ran the Pentagon's weapons testing programme, believes the anti-missile system is something the US military and the American people cannot depend upon. So, if America provokes a war, Seoul and the other cities could be destroyed. And if Seoul were sacrificed as the price for destroying North Korea, Japanese trust in the US protective umbrella would be lost. The American system of alliances in Asia would be over. On the other hand, the price for not acting is loss of credibility. If Trump's threats remain empty, the whole American edifice of military threat appears hollow and credibility is becoming increasingly important to the US in relation to its diminishing power in the world. So the question is, how long can its provocation go on without action? What action could it take? Is it possible that US rhetoric could force its hand and US public opinion may be turning in Trump's direction? infected by the feverish war propaganda. A poll of Republicans, that is, showed 46% of them supporting preemptive action. Some action does seem possible on a fabricated pretext, calibrated so as not to provoke a full war, but to show, like the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan and the cruise missile attack on Syrian air bases, that it means business. This would obviously be an extremely dangerous tactic. 
So apart from a risky covert aid to assassinate the North Korean leadership, something the South Koreans under Defence Minister Han Min-koo are rehearsing with a special brigade, what are the more immediate US options? Cutting off food and fuel is one. This is already underway, with a 30% cut in oil supplies to North Korea and a total ban on the North's textile exports. Its second biggest earner, which provides a livelihood for at least 100,000 workers. While sanctions won't bring down Kim Jong-un, they will create misery for the population in a form of collective punishment. The US hopes this will eventually destabilise the government or lead to internal splits. Sanctions are nothing new, of course. Since the Korean War, the North has been the most heavily sanctioned country in the world. But now sanctions are strangling it, with the majority of its export earnings having been blocked. 80% of North Korean land is mountainous and imports are needed to feed the population, so depriving North Korea of foreign exchange will, as Mike Whitney in Counterpunch argues, weaponize food. According to the 38 North website, which monitors the country using North Korean defectors, the 2017 growing season has been very challenging for North Korean agricultural producers. The impact of further sanctions will likely bring further challenges to the situation in North Korea. Other countries bullied into imposing sanctions include India, the Philippines, Mexico, Peru, Egypt and Uganda. According to Mike Whitney, many African countries, such as Namibia, had warm relations with North Korea, dating back to liberation struggles. But now the US has forced them to cancel contracts with North Korea. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said recently, in North Korea, economic warfare works. Other US restrictions focus on China, in particular threatening to cut off China's access to the US financial system. Ed Royce, chairman of the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee, said that America could give Chinese banks and companies a choice between doing business with North Korea or the United States. So what about China's response to these threats as North Korea's oil supplier and main trading partner? Though it is growing in strength and confidence, China is still too weak to contemplate war with America. It fears the growing US presence in Asia and is now facing the deployment of the Terminal High Altitude Air Defence System, known as THAAD, in South Korea. This is a first strike weapon aimed at China as much as at North Korea. Despite its reluctance, if America attacked North Korea, China would be forced to act. It could not let the US bomb its neighbour with impunity, nor allow US forces up to its border. But it might try to limit the scale of its response to avoid full-scale war. Hence, its interests for now are to try to de-escalate and to play for time, to remove the US pretext for flooding Japan and South Korea with new arms. If American threats to North Korea are aimed ultimately at China, they also threaten Russia. Russia, like China, shares a land border with North Korea, albeit a short one. And Vladivostok, a strategic port city and headquarters to Russia's Pacific fleet, is only about 100 kilometres from this border. Russia-North Korea trade is growing, doubling in the first quarter of this year, mostly supplying energy. Putin has said he understands the North's position. They know exactly how the situation developed in Iraq, he said recently. They know all that and see the possession of nuclear weapons and missile technology as their only form of self-defence, 
do you think they're going to give that up? Both Russia and China have called for de-escalation and a double freeze, the simultaneous suspension of North Korean missile tests and of US-South Korean military drills. But the US has refused, demanding denuclearization up front, in effect telling North Korea to disarm as a precondition to any talks. What is South Korea's position? Apart from preparing for covert raids on the North, the South claims it can produce a bomb that can paralyse North Korea's power systems, the so-called blackout bomb. But the South Korean population wants peace and has come out clearly against the deployment of THAAD. And business has been hit by the Chinese anti-THAAD boycott of tourism and other trade. South Korean President Moon Jae-in told the UN General Assembly, All of our endeavours are to prevent the outbreak of war and to maintain peace. We do not desire the collapse of North Korea. We will not seek unification by absorption or artificial means. Moon's recent election was a setback for American strategy. As for Japan, so far it has not shot down the North Korean missiles flying over its airspace. But Abe is using the crisis as a reason to boost Japanese rearmament and his recent re-election strengthens his hand against Japan's popular peaceful constitution. Britain, for its part, would not support a US preemptive strike, having learnt from the Iraq war, which not only finished off new labour, but did not provide the hoped-for windfall of lucrative oil contracts, which all went to America. Boris Johnson said recently, Maximising diplomatic and economic pressure on North Korea is the most effective way to pressure Pyongyang to halt its illegal and aggressive actions. On the other hand, if the US provoked North Korea into action, Britain could be drawn in as a NATO ally. According to the Royal United Services Institute, Britain would provide high-tech satellite communications and reconnaissance and anti-submarine T-23 destroyers against the North Korean Navy. As for Germany, Angela Merkel warned that only a peaceful diplomatic solution to this conflict is possible. Anything else would lead to catastrophe. I am deeply convinced of that. Similarly, following Trump's UN speech, Macron said that France will oppose any escalation in Korea and Le Monde commented, for the rest of the international community, this speech is a terrible challenge. To conclude, for North Korea, nuclear weapons are existential. It will never give them up because it knows what happened to Iraq, which had none, and to Libya after it gave up its nuclear programme. US sanctions are only hurting the 25 million North Korean citizens and will not alter the country's fundamental self-defence posture. The only rational way forward is a peace treaty, allowing for mutual deterrence, the way mutually assured destruction kept the peace during the Cold War. And the 1994 agreement between the US and North Korea was working until George W. Bush tore it up and included North Korea in his so-called axis of evil, making it a target of regime change with Obama continuing that drive to war, and now followed by Trump. In January this year, North Korea offered to sit with the US any time to discuss de-escalation. In May, it offered to stop nuclear testing and missile launches, if the US would end drills and sanctions, and sign a peace treaty ending the Korean War. But America refused to talk. The economic value 
of the American military-industrial complex has risen 31% so far this year on the Standard & Poor 500 Index. In Trump's first week of office alone, when he promised to raise defence spending by $54 billion, share prices in the defence and aerospace sector jumped 6.8%. The Korea crisis is producing huge dividends for shareholders, as Japan and South Korea buy extra high-tech military equipment. Trump's cabinet, the so-called adults in the room of Generals Mattis, McMaster and Kelly, along with CIA Director Pompeo, represents a visible manifestation of this military-industrial establishment. Trump's famous unpredictability is not a personal trait, but a deliberate establishment tactic to impose a climate of uncertainty and fear on the rest of the world.